Okay, here we go. So this is going to be um, kind of, as I mentioned, a kind of fast-paced discussion of, of, the, of the status of Hep C and what it's all about. So we've already seen the disclosures. So we're going to talk about the genotypes. We're going to talk about stages of infection, except that I'm going to yield most of that time to the gentleman from Ohio who will be going into the details of staging. Clinical presentation of advanced liver disease, again, Dr. Sherman talked mostly about that. Uh, emerging treatments and how the landscape will impact um, the treatment decisions in the near future and nuances of treating uh, HIV, HCV co-infection, and that'll be mostly in the cases that we talk about later in the day. So, just a quick test. Which test most accurately stages liver fibrosis? Here are your choices. Go ahead and vote. Poor guy died about a year and a half ago, right? Fame. All right, so most people got this right. Dr. Sherman will talk about this. It doesn't mean that the other ones aren't helpful, but I think liver percussion would be, you'd have to be pretty genius to figure that out. I mean, if you have like ability of testing how the shock wave goes through and how fast it's traveling, that's pretty amazing. Oh, we're going to switch out. I thought that was struggling a bit. Um, second question, what percent of persons with chronic HCV develop cirrhosis over 30 years? Are your choices? Go ahead and vote. I didn't quite get that one. At first I thought it was, uh, I don't know what it was. Okay. Anybody know that one? Yeah? What was it? Wasn't Soundgarden. Is that working? No? Oh, no, it's not. Okay. All right, there we go. We're back. Okay, so the majority said 5 to 20%. That's not exactly right, as you'll see. It's more on the 20 to 50% range, uh, and maybe even a little higher, depending on how you uh, define the staging, but certainly some degree of scarring and uh, up to the majority of people. So what's the most common genotype in the United States? Let's go ahead and vote. Georgia, Macon, Graveyard. This is actually Statesboro Blues, but uh, think of memory Elizabeth Reed, Allman Brothers. Okay, so 91% of you know that. It is genotype 1 in the U.S. and Egypt. It might be genotype 4. So here's the outline of the talk that I will try to be done with in 20 minutes. Um, it's a lot to cover. Here we go. The epidemiology, it's kind of important to go back to history. Those of us who have gray hair like me or been around a while remember this is non-A, non-B hepatitis back in the 70s and 80s. And by 1989, uh, non-hepatitis uh, C was defined. Um, the first treatment was uh, interferon, and then that switched to pegylated interferon, and then they added ribavirin, and it was a painful, miserable experience for both the patient and the providers. It worked about 40% of the time in people with uh, genotype 1, uh, a little bit better for genotype 2, but the problem is that it was painful and up to 48 weeks of misery. Um, 
using a lot of the technologies and insight in HIV, small molecules were developed, and remarkably, they have similar nomenclature like non-nukes, nukes, protease inhibitors um, that the HIV drugs do. But these came along uh, with the Replicon system being able to test them in vitro, and in 1999, the revolution followed. Worldwide, there's about 170 million people. That's not a completely known in the United States. It's roughly about 4 million people, so four times as many people infected with hepatitis C as HIV. And the thing I always like to say to kind of give it perspective is if, let's say that we found a cure for, hep for HIV today, and we announced that, that'd be front page news, it'd be all over Scarborough, you know, Morning Joe. They'd talk about it for weeks, because that'd be huge. But for some reason, for reasons I can't fully explain. We've got a cure for another viral disease that's affecting four times as many people, and you barely hear about it, except for ads from the drug companies on TV with balloons floating in the air and whatever that means. Uh, genotype 1 is the most common in the U.S. You already know that, but you can see in different parts of the world, um, like in Asia, uh, it might be more genotype 3. In Egypt, as I mentioned, genotype 4. There's a cascade, much like there is for HIV. So the bottom line is if you know HIV, you know you've got a, about an 80% head start on hepatitis C. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the similarities and differences in the talk I give later, but the cascade is an example. So the majority of people who have HCV don't know it, um, and if they do know it, they're not necessarily linked to care, and most of them aren't even getting treatment. So that's our job. That's why we're here. That's why we're having the workshop is to eliminate hep C, because you can cure it, cure it, um, in the vast majority of people. Why do you want to cure it? Well, because it can cause the, it can lead to liver disease and death. And again, that progression is about 50% uh, of people have scarring to the point of cirrhosis, 40 to 50% by the time uh, 30 years has passed. This is where we are, where that blue arrow is. And you can see that um, the number of deaths will go up, the number of hepatocellular carcinomas will go up, and we can bend those curves immediately if we act. The natural history, as I've already mentioned, there's an, there's an infection that uh, has sometimes an acute phase associated with it, and that should be a trigger to test, especially using the uh, viral RNA assay. But about 15% of people will clear it on their own think interferon, and it's just natural immunity that gets rid of it. Uh, but 85% go on to develop chronic hepatitis. That's defined that about six months after initial infection, they should have cleared the, the virus. If they didn't, then they have chronic uh, infection. This slide shows about 20% going on to cirrhosis, but again, it depends on the time frame you're talking about. Um, but the, the bad news is we can't predict who will and won't. We do know that there are things like alcohol use and uh, some other things that will accelerate the progression of fibrosis. Um, and then once they get to end-stage liver disease or hep C uh, or hepatocytic carcinoma, then the only real, if they have advanced disease with bad decompensation, the only way to correct that is with the transplant. And Dr. Sherman will talk about the uh, bad news with uh, uh, how, to, how to manage this. It's very difficult. Um, staging. Uh, Dr. Sherman's going to talk about it, but these are basically, uh, you can see the advanced scarring going from left to right uh, in this stain, and when you start having isolated um, little nodules being uh, uh, circumscribed there, that's cirrhosis on the far right.
So what are the targets for the genome, for the uh, drug? Well, again, you know the life cycle. Uh, the virus enters. It, uh, it's an RNA virus, just like HIV. Um, it, it, it goes through some degree of translation and has some protein processing. And that processing is similar to what happens with HIV, where a protease cleaves, and that's known as the NS34A um, uh, gene product. And uh, then it goes on to RNA replication, and then you have polymerase inhibitors that could be nucleosides or nucleotides. And then viral assembly, this is where things deviate a little bit from HIV. There's drugs that inhibit that uh, activity, and those are the NS5A inhibitors. So when you hear these terms, NS3, 3-4-A, NS5-B, NS5, what you're really talking about are the gene products from the uh, actual uh, virus, and these gene products are what are the targets of um, HIV, th of, of HCV therapy. The key missing difference, you'll notice, is that this all happens in the cytoplasm. HIV goes into the host nucleus and integrates into the host DNA. That's the reason you can cure hepatitis C and why you can't cure yet HIV. This is the genome. It's also, just like HIV, about nine kilobases long. It has uh, these regions here that uh, we talked about. Here's the NS34A, and here's the NS5A, and here's the NS5B, and the protease inhibitors act there, NS5A inhibitors act there, and the NS5B uh, inhibitors could either be nucleosides or nucleotides or non-nucleosides. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. But the, what's kind of cool, and this is a test question that you should have gotten before you walked in the room, um, suffixes matter. So this is a cool little trick that all the pharmacists probably know, but the clinicians may or may not, and that is you just look at the suffix. If it's a previr, that's a protease inhibitor. If it's an Asvir, one of some of my favorite, it's an NS5A inhibitor, and if it's a buvir, it's a poly, uh, it's a polymerase inhibitor. Got it? So you can keep all the drugs straight that way. So as you go through the day, just kind of notice that, and you won't even by the end of the day, you won't even be thinking about it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a protease inhibitor, or that's uh, uh, an NS5A. Here's a list of the available drugs now. Uh, a couple of new agents were released in the last uh, uh, three months, um, but in particular, uh, there's uh, uh, voxelaprevir uh, down at the bottom that's put together with valpatosphere, which was approved about a year ago, and then you'll notice midway down there's uh, uh, glucaprevir, uh, privrentasvir. Yeah. So Suzanne's going to talk about that one. <laughs> but you can look at it, right? And you know what they are. See? Here's a Previr, which is a protease inhibitor, right? And there's an Asvir, which is an NS5A. And you can look at this list and you can tell the Asvirs from the non Asvirs very easily. You know them when you see them. Kinetics. So this goes back to the interferon days, and the only reason why I show this is that less today than maybe three years ago, knowing that somebody uh, had a response or no response to interferon, these no responders historically were more difficult to treat. In the more common era uh, of what we're using now, these responses don't matter anymore. 
So this is more of histor historical purposes. If somebody got treated with interferon, they had no response whatsoever in eight, eight weeks or so. They were called a null responder. And then there were people who were um, partial responders in this blue line here. And none of this really matters, um, except to say historically. What are the current treatments? Well, I showed you that. I'm showing you this slide mostly to demonstrate, as I said earlier, that genotype 1 with PEG-RIBA um, really only got about 40% of genotype 1s, but they did better with 2 and 3. But we don't use it anymore, so it's historical context. Here's the big page. Uh, again, you can go through and see the previrs and the buvirs and the asvirs, and you can figure it out. It's also color-coded uh, to kind of help keep them straight, but you don't really even need the color code because you can, now you know the suffix, you can figure it out. Oh, one thing I'm, I was going to mention is that um, what genotypes they work against is really where a lot of the evolution has happened. So these drugs over here in the box are pan-genotypic. And I think we're going to see more and more of that and knowing how to use that. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about. In fact, a fair amount of what we're going to be talking about today. Compare that 40% activity to this. You don't need to be a statistician to say that's important and that's different. It's interesting because the uh, Cochrane review, uh, which is kind of viewed as a gold standard, uh, to me, I ignore them totally from this point forward because they're kind of, the word idiot came to mind, but I won't say that out loud. But they're kind of unwise because they said that there's low evidence, low, poor evidence for the activity of all these drugs that have this type of effect. Yes, yes. You know why? Because there wasn't a direct comparison. There wasn't a randomization of these DAA drugs against interferon ribavirin. And you kind of go, why do you need that? Well, you don't. In fact, who would sign up for that study? Um, it, it's, it's crazy, but they, they sort of stuck on that, so I've, I've chosen to ignore them. One thing we know for sure, interferon is dead. See ya. Bye. It was fun while it lasted, not really. And then these are um, some look-back studies, in this case, the cephosphorus-based regimens. The thing I want to show on this slide is basically that the factors that predict who might be at most risk for not responding, and remember, you're talking, sorry, you're talking mostly about people who had close to 95%. So you, for that minor difference, small amount, um, generally more difficult if somebody was a black race, men, um, oops, sorry. Those who had um, uh, this IL-28B non-CC, which we don't really use much anymore, maybe for research purposes, what it means is it's more responsive if it's uh, CC to, in this genotype, uh, to interferon, but also other drugs tend to sort of be a little bit more active. If somebody's cirrhotic, uh, don't respond as well. And the reason I show that is because, in general, um, these are the folks who you might want to lean for example, in a soft sophosphere lodeposphere regimen, more towards a 12-week regimen as opposed to eight weeks for mono-infected people. And uh, then they went further and, and found these groups who I've already mentioned, um, higher viral load, mm, sort of. And then when you put them all together, the key point of this slide is that if you don't have any of the markers, your response rate is pretty good, right? And if you have one, or two, it starts to go down a little bit. By the time you get three or four of those things together, then you start to see some significant impact 
on the response. So that just means you might want to lean towards treating a little bit longer, and the guidelines take all this into consideration. A big question for those of us in HIV land is, does failure equal resistance? Well, sort of. It does. Um, and the key resistance uh, associated substitutions are RASs, and they've had different names like RAVs and other things. I, I get confused. Um, but the bottom line is resistance associated variants or, or substitutions, they can be present just like with HIV before somebody ever gets a drug. But then, unlike HIV, in a lot of cases it may not matter in terms of response to therapy. So we don't typically recommend resistance testing before you treat, like we do with HIV. Um, and it's also not absolute. So you can see a mutation and think, ah, that might confer resistance to that NS5A, but in fact, uh, it, it may not have any clinical meaning. And NS5B, especially for sofosbuvir, uh, isn't all that common and probably doesn't have that much meaning, um, mostly because it's usually not there. So the patient characteristics, like I reviewed with you a second ago, are probably much more important than the presence or absence of resistance-associated substitutions. So um, here are the characteristics. It's in your packet. I'm not really going to go through this, but you can uh, sort of see where the protease inhibitors are a little bit more um, affected uh, than the NS5Bs, like I mentioned, like it's a very high resistance barrier there. And NS5As, um, you, can, you can see some resistance, but again, uh, the meaning of it, uh, uh, we typically don't, with the newer drugs, don't have as much of an issue. This is probably one of the more important um, slides, especially when we get to the uh, HIV-HCV co-infection, is the, oh, sorry, this is, these are the resistance mutations. It's just presented in the same way. And again, here are, across the top are the actual mutations, which you're used to reading uh, from HIV. So that's kind of running up through here. Uh, and then you can see how those mut mutations affect different individual agents. Again, the take-home point, looking more towards the bottom, is that the newer drugs tend to be not as affected. Uh, so it's just like the new drugs with HIV can sort of fight through some of the resistance. And a question that will come up is whether those mutations will have any meaning at all uh, as we move into the future, and that's all great news. So the final point I'm going to finish up with here is what does SVR mean? And SVR means sustained biologic response, and in essence it means cure. You test for this at least 12 weeks after the end of therapy, and Depending on who you talk to, um, it, 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 if you have somebody who's negative, remains target not detected, 12 weeks after treatment is stopped, most people say that's sufficient and they're cured and you can send them on their way. Um, there is a very small fraction who might have a relapse, not a new infection, but a relapse, say at week 28 or 34 or something. Uh, but it's rare. It's uncommon. So some people like to wait till four, five, six months uh, to, to sort of do that. In my practice, it's more like three to four months uh, after uh, the end of therapy, but we can talk to the others on the group panel and see what you guys. So are you all doing three to four months? Are you waiting? So um, we have actually Microphone. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
between SBR 12 and 24, so between three and six months. So I certainly push it out a bit. But patients kind of want to know. Um, so we do an SBR 12 check, and then we actually do. I, if I send them back to their primary care provider, um, I recommend that they t test again. Somewhere. <coughs> a year from treatment, we've actually had, sadly, a patient who relapsed right around a year. And we've had several cases that relapsed with SVR 24. And it's, as you said, the numbers are really small. I mean, some of these SVR follow-up registries would say it's about one in a 1,000. Um, but it's a tough one um, if you're that one in a 1,000 patient who's being sent away and reassured that they don't have disease anymore. So I usually recommend to the PCPs, once we've discharged them from clinic, if they don't have severe liver disease, to test one more time somewhere at that year hmm. period. Ken, do you do the same or no? So we usually do uh, a 12-week to 15, 18-week uh, check. And at the end of that, we tell the patient, you have achieved SVR. But I bring them back once more, usually uh, after that, before I say they're cured. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that, uh, that the studies in the registries all used uh, uh, laboratories where everything was very tightly controlled and most of us are using clinical laboratories where blinded panels have found error rates up to five percent mm. it's really bad to tell a patient they're cured and 10 years later have them come back with cirrhosis so i i don't use the word cure until the second negative and that's how far out from the first check sometime within the, the year following year. the okay. treatment yeah, because I started stretching to um, just because uh, the patients really know from if you tell them three months and they're going to focus on that, go to the Internet, they might see it. But for the most part, that's a good time. So this is a change from two or three years ago when we used to just say check it three to four months and that's that. So I think that pattern of checking um, uh, again in a year seems like it's becoming uh, – uh, a pattern is it have the guidelines uh, formally recommended that yet no but the guidelines did kind of extend the window to SBR 12 to 24 with the recognition of some of these late relapses and to provide some flexibility yeah. to the providers um, right to the, the can you all hear this back going there going out by a week okay I'm usually pretty loud so <coughs> mics don't add that much but um but uh, the, the going out to the, to the year mark is not something that has gone into the guidelines as of yet Okay. Question. Yeah. Does it change your practice if they're cirrhotic? Um, do you mean in terms of the SBR check? Yes. yes. Actually, no. I mean, those patients are going to be in care forever. So in terms of the discharge to the PCP and that sort of thing, yes. But in terms of the, the SBR, you just have the SBR 12, 24, 48 testing, no, we do do the same approach. So have the, you seen... The other comment is that... Uh, some of your patients are going to not have relapse but have recurrent disease because of risk to new exposures. And, uh, and if they may not tell you, but if their disease was recent, the odds that they are engaging in the same risk behaviors is, is moderately high. And that in itself becomes a reason for retesting after successful treatment. We just had a patient a few weeks ago that, uh, that went through treatment, was cured, and at her week uh, 12 check, uh, 
she was positive. And we brought her back again and said, wow, that's amazing. And we brought her back. She, she denied risk factors. Uh, it was detectable, but uh, not quantifiable. And then uh, two weeks later, there was lots of virus. Her ALTs went up significantly. And uh, when we talked to her, it turned out that uh, she engaged in a high-risk behavior uh, in the period from finishing her meds until our check, and she got reinfected. It was a different virus. Yeah. So that we'll talk about that with the HIV co-infected group, especially among MSM, where uh, in some parts of the world, like London, up to 1% of people who are cured get reinfected. That's not a relapse. So just to be clear, a relapse is when that original virus gets suppressed, and then that one in a 1,000 not quite all the way, and boom, it comes back. So that's a relapse. It'll be the same virus that was there before. Reinfection means, obviously, they were cured of the first one, and then sometime later, it could be a year or two or three later, they get infected from another exposure, and it's genetically different virus. Sometimes it's a totally different genotype. In fact, often it's a different genotype. So we've got to kind of watch for that. And if you're an HIV provider, which most of you in this room are, um, you're going to be looking for flares of liver enzymes as a sign uh, that's when you want to recheck for the HCV and see if you can detect the virus there. Yeah, Joe. Does this one in a thousand relapse rate uh, correlate any with genotype or with mutation between the initial presentation? I don't know. I mean, the original report um, of this one in a thousand number, uh, the numbers were actually so low. In fact, in that cohort, uh, it was more likely that patients were reinfected based on sequencing. So, of course, it was part of a study, so they had sequencing. Um, but for those patients where the sequencing suggested it was a true relapse, there was no other defining feature. So it wasn't that they were cirrhotic. It wasn't that they necessarily received a shorter um, a treatment course. But the numbers, thankfully, are actually quite low. So it's hard to differentiate that. And I, it's interesting, and our practice is actually, I mean, I practice both at Duke and the VA. Um, and, and our VA practices where we've seen this, and oddly, and I, I can't make any connection because the numbers are small, but our three late relapses so far, because we don't have sequencing as part of our clinical care, um, it's, 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 as you said, it's hard to know, but these are veterans whose risk, all three cases in particular that I can think of recently, um, were, was quite remote, and they had no reported risk, and I, I really do believe them, um, and they were all 1Bs. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's just weird I, I can't, I, that you can't apply that um, in any way, was shape, it, or form. But, um, was it 1B and they got treated for eight weeks instead of 12? Nope. Hmm. Nope, not at all. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. So... I hope out of that discussion that was rich and hopefully not leading to confusion to summarize um, the vast majority of people 12 weeks after end of therapy, if it's still target not detected, they're cured. That's a take-home point. But there are rare situations where it, there can be a relapse. And the, so it sounds like an emerging practice among um, uh, expert clinics and hepatologists is to recheck a year later uh, just to absolutely confirm and that's easier when you're in the primary care role, right? But if you're the referring person, you've got to either send a signal to the primary care doctor to do that or have them come back to see you. So finishing up, what does SVR really mean? It means good news. Um, uh, in general, uh, these are the rates of SVR, but uh, these are, this is a little bit older data, more from the interferon era. But um, what you're looking at here is that when... Um, when there's no treatment, then the progression uh, of overall survival 
is uh, drops. And um, if somebody had a non-response, remember that's going back to interferon, those are the null responders. They don't do well at all. But the folks who were cured did very well, at least in this limited study. And then other things are also reduced. So hepatocellular carcinoma among a cerotic patient, um, who are the people with HCV who get HCC as a rule, um, once you cure them, that it doesn't go to zero, but it, it's markedly reduced. And uh, liver failure also uh, tends to be less uh, lower incidence. It's like if somebody has non-decompensated cirrhosis or compensated cirrhosis, going to decompensated uh, becomes much, much less uh, common. And this is just more of the same. Uh, the final point, last slide, uh, these are euros. Um, doesn't matter if they're euros or dollars, they're, it's money. And uh, that's been the biggest barrier for all of us in terms of treating because it's an issue of navigating the health system you're in, the type of coverage or not that a patient has, and the, uh, uh, the nature of, of their disease some. But now that there's been some competition in the marketplace, um, negotiated rates which are uh, opaque to us as providers, except even in the VA you sort of don't fully know what they're paying, but you have a sense. I think some people have gotten that out. But the point is it's a moving target, and it's, and it's held under cloak. And so you don't know what your payer, your, that provider, that patient's insurance plan is paying for the drug. And now that there's been this competition, um, the overall cost to the payer has dropped dramatically. So it's not list price at $90,000 a treatment course. It's probably somewhere now less than $30,000. And then with that, uh, things have kind of lightened up a little bit. And the second thing that led to lightening up is that when these drugs first hit in 2012, 2013 or so, the insurance actuarially had not counted on paying for all that money in one fiscal year, and all that money for this disease in one fiscal year. So there's a lot of pushback. And then as they adjusted, it's the reality that, oh, okay, we're going to be doing this, and yeah, the prices are coming down. Now it's, relatively speaking, easier to get coverage. Finally, if your patient is co-infected, Ryan White Care Funds pay for this, right? And you can so often get 340B pricing, and so there's ways of making this happen. And so in this case, it's really... Uh, HIV patients are able to uh, actually have a bit of an advantage if they're at the VA, huge advantage because they want to, as you said, get rid of hep C by 2020, which is great. Okay, um, that's the overall intro, and I'm going to turn it, uh, stop and just see if there are any questions um, further. Yes? So for patients, who, patients who have no funding other than whatever they can get, the companies provide. If you have a reinfected patient, is the company going to pay for it again? Typically, yes, but um, the Medicaid is where I have the biggest problem. They're the ones who put up the biggest fight about reinfection, I mean, retreatment for reinfection, but what are your experience there? Is it the VA, they'll cover it for the most part? The VA definitely covers it. Um, that has not been an issue. We, we have, not, I have not, we've had a couple of reinfections. Um, I think this is where you really emphasize. I think the, the big discussion I spend with our patients on our kind of end of treatment plus 12 visit as they're getting their SVR checked is to emphasize um, their partner status, um, the need to ensure that they protect themselves, the risk of reinfection. 
I mean, I think education goes a, a long way, especially for, for partners. I mean, I think it's really important to make sure they don't reinfect because partners reinfect partners after one's been treated and one hasn't been. We try to get all partners in to get them treated, but especially if it's the VA, for example, the partner's not a veteran. We struggle sometimes controlling that. Um, so I think the main thing to emphasize is, is that. Um, shy of that, we've had some reinfections, and we have not yet had an issue getting um, patient assistance programs to cover it. Um, I don't, and I don't know that I've had an insured patient um, where I've had to go back to insure. I certainly know in the early days, insurers, what I would say, bullied our patients to say, you get one treatment, your doctor wants your treatment, now we're going to give it to you. And, and I had patients who got personal phone calls. I don't know if that's still going on, and I don't know that that holds up in court once now that we have treatments for treatment. Um, and how do you define retreatment? Um, and how do you differentiate reinfection from relapse? Um, I would think about some of those things as you, um, you know, go into that. So um, we also have not had trouble with getting drugs for retreatment. Uh, actually, the biggest trouble we've had has been the stupidity of the insurance companies who want us to use softoclatosphere, which is a wonderful but very expensive regimen. Um, and yet that's what they've approved for some of these retreatments. And uh, we go, okay, we'll, we'll do it. But has not really been an issue. Dr. Patel, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's late. It's okay. uh, as I just wanted to say, as Dr. Uh, Sag alluded to, the Department of Health will pay for co-infected patients, you know, HIV, hepatitis C, co-infected patients. If you are not a provider, you can be a provider, and we'll reimburse you very handsomely also for treating hepatitis C and HIV co-infected patients. For the last two years, you know, unfortunately, we, we've been you know, we've been able to cure about 25 patients of um, uh, hepatitis C who are co-infected. We have funds for way more uh, patients. At least 50 to 60 patients can be treated every year. So we just, I'm sure out of the 6,000 HIV uh, patients in the state, there are more than 25 co-infected patients. So you just need to screen them and get them into treatment. All that we need is a denial. I don't care what stage they are in of their fibrosis or anything. We don't need fibroscan, biopsy, or anything. If they have private insurance, Medicare, Medicare, whatever, if, it, if they are denied, we will pick up the tab for that. So there are uh, way more many patients. So please do screen. If they are co-infected, contact the Department of Health, and, and we'll arrange for the treatment. And you can sign up as a provider uh, also uh, if you want to treat them yourself. So you were talking about um, partner status. So in, in my, or you were talking about partner status. The most recent thing that I've said says that you don't really pay that much attention to partner status with hep C, that you don't have to necessarily practice safe sex if you're with a long-term partner. But that's not what originally had come out with hep C. And have they gone back? Because still ads say, oh, you don't, you know, if you were with a long-term partner, you don't necessarily have to. It's good to test everyone, right? Everyone should be tested. So if you test that partner and they're positive, treat them just for their own health, right? So I think hopefully we move beyond the need for um, uh, even answering the question. But the rule of thumb still is you don't worry as much about sexual transmission in a steady relationship. I think that, that there's a caveat there, right? Because the studies that looked at, so the one we're talking about, I think what you're talking about is heterosexual partners, not same-sex um, partners, because that's, that's a critical differentiator here in terms of risk. 
Um, but the second part is the studies of educating heterosexual monogamous partners is in a long-term relationship where one has been positive for a long time and the other has been negative for a long time. What I was alluding to was if you have two partners who are both positive in that relationship and now one has been treated, we have no idea in that setting, no study has addressed what is the risk of that now heterosexual positive partner reinfecting that heterosexual now negative partner. Um, we have no idea. So I would, I would argue that so that's a, that's a treat. Yeah, I think that's the key. The key is to get to those partners and treat them. Right. Well, there's, there's exposures other than sexual exposure in household settings. Um, the, uh, the most quoted study says that the risk in heterosexual transmissions, about one in 700,000 sex acts. Uh, so then you have to say, for an individual, so let's, and that's where I'm going to. So the average young couple has sex 500 times a year, and they do that for about five years, and then the numbers start going down. And when you get to a certain age, you may be lucky at 10 times a year, and the risk becomes quite low. And so you need, you need to know where they're at in that relationship spectrum to figure out what is the individual risk. So a new thing we're going to do at this meeting is go around the room and ask, <laughs> how, how <laughs> what's your relative risk? So you had a question related to Dr. I actually have two questions. Right. Um, we've treated cirrhotic patients and developed cancer. So I know it's about 1% to 4% of people are cirrhotic develop cancer. But ha is there any studies out there that people that are treated with these drugs do develop cancer? And my second question about, um, we do have patients that are calling and telling us that they can buy the drugs from India, and they're paying like $1,000 for a week, and they're willing to pay that. Now, ethics-wise, can we still check those patients since they've been denied by their insurance? So when you say risk of cancer, are you referring to the... I think you mean if there's a cirrhotic patient who gets cured, do they still have a risk of hepatocellular carcinoma? Yeah, yes. Two patients that develop cancer yes. after yes. treatment. Yes. It's low, much it, lower. It, it, drops, it, it drops about 60 to 70 percent relative to where they were before, but it does not go to zero. Which means we have to keep screening. Right. Yes, that's what I was. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. There, right. So, so the other issue is there was a big flurry of concern about a year and a half ago. Uh, there were some reports that suggested that you actually, by treating patients with very late stage liver disease, accelerated the risk of developing cancer, and. Uh, that has now been looked at uh, in much more careful epidemiologic studies and appears not to be true. Yeah, those studies were sponsored by the Insurance Corporation of North America. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just teasing. 